Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren, and I'm super excited today. Joyce Coffee is with us. Joyce, how are Hello, you today? Kim. I'm great. How are you? It's so nice to see you and hear your voice. <laughs> Likewise. So, Joyce, you were one of our first um, interviews on SAS Talk with Kim. Uh, it was kind of actually the end of 2016. Wow. Um, and we talked about financing climate resilience work and some of the challenges there. And, and of course, with you, you, you have so much expertise and experience in the field. Of course, I could talk with you for hours about tens of different topics. Um, but what I really want to focus on with you today is the Rising to the Challenge Together report that you and, and a few other co-authors uh, wrote for the Kresge Foundation. Um, so the report was released late last year, and it has been billed as a critical assessment of the state of the climate adaptation field in the U.S. So congratulations for that. It's pretty critical. We'll see what you think when I get to tell you more about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, one of the things that really struck me in the executive summary you wrote Climate adaptation has begun to emerge as a field of practice. However, it is not evolving quickly or deliberately enough for communities to adequately prepare for the dangerous shocks and stresses that increasingly will be introduced by climate change. So I'd love to understand, have you unpack some of the factors that really led to that conclusion? Yeah, that's great. I would like to start with that. And I also, though, want to give a shout out to my collaborators, Dr. Susie Moser with Susan Moser Research and Consult Consulting, and Aleka Seville, who at the time was with Forest 27 Inc. Um, as a threesome, we worked for the Kresge Foundation, which many people on, um, on the podcast know is a leading philanthropy that's really focused on adaptation in the U.S., and they asked us to do this research. And the research itself, by the way, entailed interviews and surveys with almost 100 leaders. Um, these were folks from the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, academia, and they covered pretty much the gamut of any kind of adaptation-related expertise you could imagine. But you know, when we think about the state of the field um, and understand that it's not really living up to where it needs to be, I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, one is that the field is really driven largely by crisis, and it doesn't um, have, therefore, a unifying vision for a better future, right? Just recovering from crisis is not the vision that we want. Um, it, it really does remain mostly reactive rather than proactive. And um, in, in that way, there's really a sense of urgency that's lacking um, with many, many adaptation efforts stalled in the, in the planning stages. So, you know, while we have people responding really dramatically to crisis, the adaptation plans that are proactive haven't actually gone into the stage of implementation. And I think another element of what we found in the research is that there's a prevailing emphasis on urban adaptation, which of course, you know, you and I as urban planners know is a hugely important area, but also small towns and rural areas are being left behind. Um, and there's a lot of interdependency between cities and the surrounding area that maybe the adaptation field hasn't yet embraced. Um, and then finally, one other critique that we found um, really dramatically in this is that while there is a growing 
awareness of the disproportionate impact of climate change on the most vulnerable, and we know we need equitable solutions. There are few adaptation actors who really understand how to incorporate equity into their work. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just going to pause there for a moment because this question of adaptation equity is powerful um, and we haven't yet figured out uh, as a field of incredible leaders what to do to make sure we're solving equity questions at the same time that we're solving adaptation ones. Well, and that's a really great point and a fantastic overview. So thank you for that. Um, but do you think it's a, more of a symptom of that really as communities, we haven't been able to address equity in any situation that it's not necessarily, well, the climate adaptation fields behind because we haven't nailed this just from in the regular world, if you will. Yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, I think one of the questions that um, many of us in the adaptation sector face, and it's really a question we have to ask ourselves, is how do we manage to solve two seemingly intractable problems? Mm -hmm. That of social equity and that of the predicted scenarios of climate risk. And the fact that they tend to have a much disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable populations means that we have to answer that question with, I don't know, but I'm going to courageously go forth and I'm going to find all the best possible solutions that put equity first. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think too, I mean, of course, in the broader sustainability field as well, it's a challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reality is a lot of those that are the most vulnerable, we're talking low income folks, we're talking um, folks with health conditions, um, you know, homeless folks, they have other priorities uh, mm -hmm. each day. You know, it's like, hey, am I going to make it to the next day? It's not, I wonder if in 20 years I may be impacted by high heat or even, ne even tomorrow, next week. Mm -hmm. um, they don't really have the luxury to be thinking about it. So you're right. I think as a field, we need to figure out a way to do both. And, you know, I, I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here and say that those of us that are in this kind of urban planning, sustainability, climate change arena are probably trying to do more than most to make sure that we're picking up that piece while we're driving forth with our primary piece. Well, I, I would hope so. And actually, that's part of what the vision um, that's laid out in this report is. It's, it basically says to all of us, um, do more of what you're doing um, with equity as the bedrock. So simply stated, the vision of the Rising to the, get, to the Challenge Together report is closing the resilience gap through significantly accelerating mitigation and adaptation efforts while building so social cohesion and equity. We do both of these things, right? We, we, we move in on mitigation and adaptation. That's item number A. And then item number one is we build social cohesion and equity. And this is really, you know, vision scaffolding, right? It will be expressed in ways that are locally meaningful and include actions on adaptation and mitigation that all have as their bedrock greater social cohesion and equity. Um, I think a mature adaptation field will make this vision a reality. And what you, what you say really makes sense to me. It's not that we're not doing this in some nascent way, but our maturation means that we make it re real. Um, and I think I, I'd love to say more about the mission of, of what this maturing field looks like, because I think that's really part of what the vision offers us is a chance to get down to the, a little bit more of the brass tacks, right? 
We're looking to minimize and alleviate climate change threats to human health and well-being and to natural and built systems on which we as humans depend. Um, and it's really exciting to fulfill this mission. And this gets to your point, Kim, about the fact that many of the most vulnerable don't have climate risk or adaptation as their main priority. But when adaptation professionals, professionals fulfill this mission, they create new opportunities to address the um, issues of social, environmental, and economic problems, right? That's the key to adaptation. If we don't do that, creating these opportunities to address the causes and consequences of climate change in ways that solve these related social issues, then we haven't really worked, um, I think, very effectively. Um, and, you know, just ending by saying that this really requires that we have, you know, people at the fore of adaptation that are expanding um, their engagement um, and really including diverse actors as well as leaders. Mm -hmm. and, and that in the practice of adaptation, that we are focused on capacity building for all of us to become better adaptation actors than equity actors in the same breath. And then we have more tools of persuasion in our toolbox to get to this quest for adaptation being at the heart of, you know, solution pro um, provision for these economic and environmental and social problems. And finally, that we um, are looking to expand this impact through, you know, policy and different funding sources. I think those are three people, practice and pillar pieces of, you know, fulfilling this mission of, um, of you know, minimizing and alleviating climate risks and threats to human well-being. I really like that framework that you uh, provided. And um, I know you've got like a cool image. Uh, it's from the report that we can post with this so folks can see it uh, if they haven't already read the report, which you should, listeners. It's fantastic. Um, one of the things that really strikes me, you know, while we're in the midst of doing some planning projects now with clients on resilience and sustainability is just recognizing kind of the instant gratification type of world we're in today, right? I mean, one of the things I remember, uh, I mean, gosh, I think we started doing ICLEI's climate adaptation program back in 2006. And it was hard enough to talk about mitigation, right? Um, but at least with mitigation, a lot of those actions, we could say, you're going to see uh, a cost savings, or you'll actually mm -hmm. see your utility bill, your energy use going down. You know, there was something that you could point to. But with climate adaptation, it's like, hey, a big storm came and nothing happened. Like, that's the best thing that can happen is that nothing has happened from that storm. You were protected. You were able to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. Have you tried to address that as far as like just, I mean, that's what it is. So much of this is using this framework. And then how are we communicating it to get our public and community members really engaged in a way that they'll connect with? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think um, was unique about the Rising to the Challenge Together report is that we actually suggested some measures of adaptation progress. Um, and it's, you're right, Kim, that I think the field has really been wary of determining whether or not, you know, is there a resilience metric? Do we have a metric ton of carbon dioxide equivalent, an MMTCO2E, for resilience? And the answer is no, but I think there's a set of qualitative and quantitative metrics that we should be looking at, you know, starting now at day one and then over the course of the next, you know, year, two years, five years. Um, and they really, to me, fit into like, you know, a set of uh, categories, right? We, we could think about having um, a values framework. Do, do, is there a values framework that's established for the field? Yes or no? You know, 
check. Right. Um, we think right now that there's not. Right. Um, is there a diverse set of field leaders established and widely recognized? Um, growing, but you know, not diverse enough. And I don't mean just in terms of whether we include um, you know, environmental justice and equity players. I mean, do we have health at the table, yeah. landscape architects, real estate, finance? Is, are all of those players that have so much um, potential risk and opportunity in this climate change future attending to this issue. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot to be um, recommended to thinking about some of these things that we could qualitatively look at, but we can also ask qualitative or quantitative questions like, is more dedicated funding available for resilience building? Hmm. You know, are funding streams sustained and pooled? Mm -hmm. Not yet, right? I mean, there's some of these things that, you know, do we see more general obligation bonds in cities looking at resilience as one of their measures? Right. No. So, you know, th those things I think are really valuable for, you know, getting more um, of us thinking about resilience as something that is actually measurable. Because you're right that that's not been an area of strength for us at this point. And it's sad that that is a challenge for the general public, right? And for folks to take on and you really need strong leaders um, or you had to be one of the unlucky ones that experienced a significant event. And, and then you, you remember, right? We are driven by crisis uh -huh. as and we don't like to necessarily be prepared even though we say we do, right? Yeah. Well, so along those lines, again, I mean, you're always coming with such great ideas. I love these, creating more of these frameworks, but. One of the report's recommendations is also around kind of, hey, we need greater sophistication and professionalization of practice here. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit around what that would look like and how you think that would improve um, the overall approach to climate adaptation? Yeah, I'm happy to. And I'm going to start by just offering some things that I think the field is doing, um, because you know, we, we want to be sure that we're not giving our listeners the sense that it's all, um, you know, a critique of what hasn't happened. There clearly is a lot of valuable stuff happening already. And part of it is this professionalization of the practice. But I'll start by just saying that I think the field does has a, have a growing purpose. And, you know, climate impacts are driving, are driving adaptation. Whereas we might think that that's kind of a bummer to have this crisis driving um, outcome. But on the other hand, as some mayors have said, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. So that's certainly happening in this field of adaptation. Um, and it's activating people in sectors that hadn't been involved before. Mm -hmm. um, new, new networks are energized in the adaptation field, including the city space. Um, you know, I think many of us know the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, the 100 Resilient Cities of the Rockefeller Foundation pioneered, um, star communities, a lot of different groups have made adaptation and resilience a key part of their work. Definitely. But we also have a lot of community groups and even utilities in the private sector that are embracing some of this work. So I think from the perspective of its, of its purpose, it's coming along. Um, and the practice itself is also advancing um, and improving in certain areas. For instance, the knowledge base on adaptation is improving. Um, you know, we know more about how to do it. Um, investment and capacity building has strengthened the field. Um, you know, we've seen some of, for instance, the Kresge Foundation's really significant field building work result in better adaptation um, outcomes in California um, and in other communities where they've made really, I think, significant strides, especially, for instance, in Southern Florida, another place where we know that there's been a lot of collaboration that's resulted in better adaptation. Um, tools supporting adaptation are increasingly available. Of course, they do remain slightly difficult to select 
can use because it's such a big field of tools out there. And not many of them do what your dashboard does in terms of being really user friendly and addressing the question that the user has rather than what the developer has. Right. Um, and then, you know, I would just, you know, end with this question about where the practice is by saying that science and practice are increasingly working together. Um, so that's really crucial because, you know, the scenario based climate risk is different from anything most of us have ever done. You know, you, you don't, we don't generally find ourselves thinking in a scenario way. And so the fact that science is helping yeah. us to do that by giving us better visuals and mo models, I think is really important. And then the field is also experimenting really widely, um, which is huge in the early part of the field. So um, I, I guess I would just say that to start and then to, to, to pivot a little bit more closely to your question about this um, sophistication and professionalization of the practice, um, what, what we think is needed is really a lot more strategic thinking in resilience building interventions, like um, how do you do these things and what is their outcome? And to do that, by the way, we need better stories about what people have tried. Mm -hmm. So there's a communication theme underlying all of this. Um, I think, you know, this, th that really leads to us knowing that we have to have ability to um, understand what underlies effective climate change communication with diverse audiences. Like, and there's been some great work on that, um, you know, some of it funded by foundations and others out of universities that do give us a much better sense. Um, and, and I think, you know, we also need to allow ourselves to take the time for certification and training. Um, and, you know, there are efforts underway towards that. Um, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals is uh, working on a training program with the Arizona State University um, Executive Education Program. So this is not academic training, it's professional training. That's and, great. you know, um, we know, of course, the Association of Climate Change Officers has for a long time been offering trainings that include adaptation as well as mitigation. So. Um, I think we, we, we have to be more intentional around that, but it is um, an area of the field that's growing. And, you know, any field that you look at, I know you and I have both been involved at one time or another in the American Planning Association as one example, but they all have this early days when it was kind of the Wild West and there wasn't training and there wasn't yeah. certification. And then, you know, people saw the need and they even saw the opportunity, you know, there's, there's, there's business to be made in being trainers and certifiers. So I think that's something that we know is coming um, and we need to see more of it. You know, it's so interesting because as you're talking, I, of course, had so many thoughts and really got to the point of, you know, is it that, I mean, well, let me take the step back. I think about to my early ICLEI days and, you know, talking uh, for the audience's sake, like I started at ICLEI in 2005. Um, things were really just starting to take hold, particularly on the mitigation side. Mm -hmm. Cities were paying attention to climate change, to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, ICLEI, of course, had a tool. And it felt like, and, and honestly, I can't tell you how many cities I recruited after like um, an inconvenient truth came out. Oh, I know. Right. So many of them like, my, well, my mayor saw an inconvenient truth and told me to find someone who could help us with this. And all roads led to Ickley. I actually had someone say, I'm like, can I please use that testimonial? Um, <laughs> but it felt like I think at the time, and then of course, others started following suit that, okay, Ickley is going to take care of this with local governments. And maybe there were other groups for other folks like... And honestly, I'm, there's a lot of conversations I could have around things that I think we did really well and things I think we could have done better. Uh, we had talked about wanting to have a certification and training program. I'm glad that 
the Association of Climate Change Officers kind of picked up and ran with that. But is it that there just isn't that like one group um, and, and we feel like we need to kind of get a bunch of people together? Or are we at the point where it's like, hey, we can't be waiting for this, for someone to decide this is what they're going to do. The time is like way past for the early stage plan. I mean, do you feel like it's a combination maybe? Like, is it the urgency or is it a lack of an organization specifically focused on that? That is such a great question. And actually, it could be asked of many of the recommendations in the report. We, we talk about a need to balance urgency with efficacy. Mm -hmm. So, right, I mean, it absolutely needs to have been done yesterday. And let's just take this question of training as an example. Especially now, I mean, we don't actually all need to sit in the classroom and be trained. Right. It's not like back in the day. So right. much of the training, I... Well, and we weren't, right? You and I weren't classically trained in this work. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I mean, I think we, we you know, we set an intention and this, this quest for intentional training, you could interpret that two ways. One is that we have an institution that does this very formulaic training, which is probably needed. But the other is that those of us who are keen to make sure that adaptation equity happens, make it a part of our work. And we go out there and we find the podcasts and we sit on the panels and ask the questions and you know we really we write the blogs to get the answers better um, clarified in our, in our own minds so that that part of developing of the field I think um, is that nice balance between urgency and efficacy because there is material out there um, that can allow many of us especially those that wouldn't call themselves adaptation experts but are willing to think about climate scenarios in their work mm -hmm. those are some of the best ambassadors for this work that we have when you have a public health officials say, I'm going to make sure that we don't lose another soul due to extreme heat. Mm -hmm. And that this is how, you know, and he works with, you know, you talk about homeless population not needing to worry about climate change. Actually, it's in their backyard today. Yep. They are the first line of crisis around many of these issues, um, you know, be it fire or heat or flooding uh, or vector-borne disease. So yeah. I think that there's, that your point is incredibly important, that it's got to be done urgently, and we have to also constantly think of doing it efficaciously. Such a great point. And I love the example of the public health folks. I, I also, of course, as you know, am so involved with the American Public Works Association. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing there. And I'll tell you, in my experience, the mitigation conversation, the climate mitigation conversation with that, those folks was not as easier, as easy, excuse me, as the resilience in the adaptation. Because yeah. again, it's switching to what they deal with and they understand. You know, they are the front line along with police and fire and mm -hmm. uh, in their communities. So it's, um, it's, it's a great point that you're making uh, when we can, can get them to connect and just say, hey, here's what you're doing and you're already seeing these impacts. What if I told you it's going to get worse? Yeah. Here's some of that climate data that's showing that. Um, so I guess along those lines, um, kind of talking at, at the local government level, um, and we have a lot of local government listeners, elected officials, planners, sustainability directors, etc. cetera. Um, I wonder if you could share some specific examples that, you know, they could take to help bolster or even get started with some climate adaptation work in their communities. 
Yeah, I'd love to. I'm going to give you four examples, uh, three or four examples of cities that have done that and sort of tease out what it was that I think is really profound about their work. But first, I want to just transition from what you were just saying about this need, like through the, your work with the American Public Works Association, to meet people where they are. Um, Catherine Hayhoe, who many know, is a, a you know really vibrant climate scientist at Texas Tech and is also um, you know very active uh, in TV, actually, trying to tell people about why climate science matters, um, said something really profound uh, recently to me, which was that you know when you ask someone, what are your top six priorities? No one is going to say climate change. But of those top six priorities, it's very likely that six out of six of them relate to climate risk. And mm -hmm. so it's up to us as people who know climate scenarios and know about climate risk and opportunity to make that translation. Other people don't have to. We don't have to force that down their throat. But we need to help them to figure out how their priorities can best be addressed knowing what we know about these scenarios. And I'll just use that as a pivot to say that I think there are many local governments that are doing just that. So um, in, in one case, for instance, um, LA Safe, which is Louisiana, uh, it's a program that was funded by the um, National Disaster Resilience Competition, and part of it has resulted in a six-parish plan um, to essentially create resilience. And they really rarely use the word climate, but they talk a lot about flood and they talk about livelihood changes because so much of the economy of these parishes relates to the uh, water economy, um, you know, seafood and uh, tourism in particular. And of course, oil and all of that, uh, you know, the work around um, oil refinery. So this six parish plan that LA Safe has put together has been, um, I think, profound in that it has fostered dialogue and solicited opinion about what form community members hope their communities will take in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's really focused on what their widely held goals are and facilitated this dialogue about the trade-offs and the difficult choices that are made. I mean, that is one of the things that we, um, writing this report, uh, didn't call out LA safe, but we thought it was very crucial for local government to be doing this dialogue from within communities finding their goals and elevating them up to the point of resilience. Um, going to them to you know, their meetings, not having your own meeting and inviting them to it. And LA Safe has done that, I think, in a really brilliant way. Um, a second example is in New York City, um, where they have made adaptation policy a part of their code in dozens and dozens of ways. So, you know, one of the recommendations of the report is that you require infrastructure and construction to make climate conscious decisions regarding materials and building techniques so that new development does not run counter to adaptation and resilience efforts, right? That's the worst. I mean, you and I, we just cringe at that because as planners, we're talking about, you know, decisions that are not for the next three months, they are for the next three decades, maybe right. even three generations, right. <laughs> right? And so the fact that New York has made Every one of the policies that matter from the perspective of the built form and land use, zoning questions, um, transportation, uh, really explicitly related to these future scenario-based risks, I think is really important. And it's key to note that not all of that required that they, you know, go back to FEMA and find better maps from the Federal Emergency Management Agency those we can't necessarily rely on. So New York has done it a different way, you know, based upon performance and based upon assumptions, um, you know, 
vis-a-vis -vis the scenarios that they're aware are going to impact um, in, impact Manhattan and other parts of, of other boroughs in the city. So that's number two as an example. And then the third one, I'll stop there, but is I think Miami Beach has done a great job of seeking outside expertise to critique the work. So, you know, we often think about research institutions doing their thing and agencies doing their thing and professional societies doing their thing. But the fact is that there's an entry point for all of those groups to really be active in cities adaptation work. Mm -hmm. And I mean city with a capital C. And I think that Miami Beach has done a really nice job of that. I, I know, for instance, that they're seeking um, criticism actually from the Urban Land Institute and an advisory panel that they'll have there soon around their living shorelines. Uh, they've sought, you know, insights from other countries um, and they've certainly been very involved with universities, uh, Florida International University, I know to speak of one. Um, of course, many listeners will be saying, I'm not New York and I'm not Miami Beach. And I think the key is that um, we are, are looking for you to take examples of this that do apply to your situation. You know, right. there may be a higher learning institution nearby that would, that needs, if they don't, they may not know it, but they definitely need to be working more in practice. <laughs> so you should offer them the chance to figure it out with you, um, just as one example. That's a great example. And, you know, in, in general, I think it's really important, you know, with the clients I've worked with all over the country, you know, they are always hesitant to require things. And, you know, my thing is we are becoming a, a more and more global or, you know, I guess world for lack of better term. But if you think about it, very few cities, especially any large city um, or even large metro area is going to have a small, tiny little developer that only works in that metro area, right? Mm -hmm. My whole point is kind of like, these guys are building to these higher standards in other states and in other cities. Why would you let them get away with not doing it here? Yeah. You know, so while, of course, we're not all New York cities, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we never will be, but New York City and others that have taken the lead like that are laying the groundwork. And these companies are still building in New York. They're not saying, oh, I'm sorry, we're just not going to build in New York City. Yeah. And they're not going to do it to your community either. Uh -huh. They're already doing it. They know how to do it. I, I feel like the cities need to really be stronger and take ownership. Because at the end of the day, they can't leave. Their developers can leave. Yeah. But it's, they're the ones who have to answer to their citizens. And they need to be willing to, to put the leadership out there and saying, I'm putting my citizens in my community first. And these standards, you're building otherwhere. So you're going to do it here too. It's so, it's so important. I mean, it just reminds me when I worked for Mayor Daley in the city of Chicago, um, you know, one of the expressions of his that I just really love, I wish I had his tone of voice, but he'd say to me, or he'd say to anybody, you know, I, I love to do things first, but only if someone else has done them first before me. <laughs> and I'm like, that really rings true to me because like just to the point of New York City and their codes, those are public codes. Right. If you're doing a new stormwater code and you have a combined sewer system and you are anywhere near the coast, go check out what New York's done. That's and right. if you're not near the coast, but you're doing something with stormwater and combined sewers, check out Philadelphia and Chicago, right? I'm just, I mean, even though those cities are so much bigger, you know, they took all the time with their lawyers and their consultants still right. work to that's make right. it work for you. That's right. I think that's so important. And another thing that, you know, you kind of made me think about when you were talking about um, these examples, uh, because they were kind of across the board, is something that we're seeing um, 
you know, gaining traction. And, and really, I think it's a factor of budget. Um, but also, I think it's the right way to do it. And it, it's, it's sustainability, it's climate adaptation, it's mitigation, but this whole idea of mainstreaming. Mm. So, you know, any given city, and particularly for our smaller communities, but really for everybody, why do we need to have 10 different planning processes? You know, it's like, we've got the comp plan. And then of course, we're going to do a sustainability plan, then we'll do our climate action plan, our, you know, and then our resilience plan. And a lot of folks are now looking, hey, can we do this together? We're talking about the same community. And we should be kind of looking at these as overlays. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what the benefits you see or what do you gain by mainstreaming? Yeah, that's just a great, great set of questions actually. And in the report, we really lay out actually a continuum of um, adaptation approaches, which can range from the standalone planning efforts that are enabled by post-disaster funding you know, so all that post-Sandy stuff isn't really even mainstreaming. It's a special case. Yeah. And then we have the mainstream approaches that address climate risk largely within existing structures, processes, and funding mechanisms, which I'll talk a little bit more about. And then we have the transformative approach, which I've mentioned that word transformation already a couple of times in our discussion today. But I think the need is really to recognize that we need to accelerate mainstreaming and move to transformative change um, in city and region-wide systems, uh, setting really ambitious goals that, it, that aim to achieve achieve both mainstreaming and transformation. But let me talk a little bit more about this mainstreaming because um, I have to say that I've always thought that mainstreaming was the, you know, bee's knees. And when you did your um, presentation at the National Adaptation Forum with a couple other colleagues about mainstreaming, that room was packed. I mean, we could <laughs> not was. breathe. It was, everyone really wants to know, like, how do we mainstream? So um, I think there's many different answers to how we do it. And I just want to speak about some of the benefits that come from or are addressed by, you know, this mainstreaming. Um, you know, first of all, I think financial constraints can really be addressed um, with adaptation work that is advanced, advanced within existing budgets without having to secure additional separate or new funding sources. Mm -hmm. Why is our GEO bond not focused on adaptation. It must be, right? Especially now, of course, that Moody's and Standard & Poor's are thinking that their credit ratings are going to be looking at this question of resilience. You darn well make sure your, fine, you know, your primary funding is looking at that. Um, political hurdles. If you mainstream, climate change considerations can be integrated into projects and programs already underway. And this really protects them from short election cycles and political opposition. It's not some special thing. It's what we do de rigueur. And maybe we don't use the word climate but we know that we have scenarios of future risk embedded in our work. Um, you know, planning processes, existing plans, solution options, they can all be informed and improved by considerations of future scenarios of climate impacts. Um, where there's limited authority, um, when you have a dedicated climate sustainability or resilience staff, if they don't have the authority to influence other processes, then mainstreaming can really balance responsibility among multiple agencies and departments with the authority to act. Or if you don't have the benefit of having a dedicated sustainability person, then you have mainstreaming with you know, a few internal entrepreneurs who help the commissioners of transportation and fleet and emergency management to make this balance between resilience and their other priorities. Um, just a couple more. Um, I think you know the the key. One of the other key things that mainstreaming does is help to um, mitigate capacity deficiencies, mm -hmm. um, which I just talked about. You know, it's a really great near-term approach to incorporating, especially in small and medium-sized cities resilience and climate change into the work, but it can also help with when there's a lack of motivation. When you have a, like multiple competing priorities and are exhausted by them, 
Um, and you have, you know, many leaders who find those other priorities much more attractive from the perspective of their, you know, being elected again or getting into the mayor to talk to him about whatever is on their mind. When you can find overlaps and co-benefits between adaptation and these other goals, which is what mainstreaming does, you can really elevate the urgency to act. So there's a few more that are discussed in the report, but I think that the key, you know, takeaway here is that mainstreaming definitely has a place in future robust adaptation. Um, it's not the be all and end all, um, even though I do think it's pretty exciting. And I always like to start, you know, my little term, not Mayor Daly's, but Joyce's is, um, <laughs> I like to go in with a lot more sugar than vinegar. So <laughs> my approach to mainstreaming is to look at everything that's happening in an institution, whether it's a city or a nonprofit, and call my own shots about what I think is adaptation, even though they don't call it that. Yeah. And then be able to say to them, oh my goodness gracious, look at the progress you have made. This yeah. is remarkable. You have mainstreamed adaptation in this, that, and the other thing, and it's already paid dividends for you. Let's see what else you can do. So it's like founded on this point of you know, great success that then leads to you know, more mainstreaming of um, a deeper variety in the future. I think that's such a great point because so often in working with local governments, they are doing things, they're taking action. They're just calling it different things, you know? And I love that you're able to kind of point that out to them, like, look at the progress you made when you weren't even trying. Yeah. So I, that's, a, that's really a great way to approach it and kind of pe get people excited because, you know, when we find it, you know, we don't necessarily call it out as mainstreaming, but everything is about integrating and being efficient. And, mm -hmm. and I think, it's a little bit of doing things outside of the box. Yeah. Um, and some folks just really struggle with that, <laughs> yeah. you know, but it's, it's really important because I, I agree. I think that's where you actually, um, you get a more actionable product out mm -hmm. of a plan. Too many plans sit on shelves and everybody talks about not having a plan that's going to sit on a shelf mm -hmm. and they often do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's really so important to, it's not the plan, it's how you design the process right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and that's what we kind of always tell our clients, like, hey, we've got to get this process down and do it right, right from the start, then your ultimate product will be implementable. I can create whatever tables I want and assign people to these tasks, but yeah. if they haven't been brought in from the beginning, it's pointless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I know we're running out of time and of course, I can always talk to you forever because you are such a wealth of knowledge. Um, but I guess, you know, there was a lot of research that was done for this uh, project. And of course, you and Susie and um, Aleka, Aleka um, all of you have so much experience and expertise. Um, what was one kind of big lesson for you? Were there any? I mean, through all of this, was there a lesson for you? And then just a quick follow up on you know, what were some of the most striking findings? Great. Well, you know, we've talked about mainstreaming and how valuable it is, but one of the biggest lessons for me that really, you know, caught in my throat actually was that mainstreaming doesn't necessarily address equity. Yeah. If we have inequitable approaches and already embedded in our systems and then we mainstream them, we are simply perpetuating the problem. So right. I've mentioned transformation a lot and that was really the biggest lesson for me. And that's something, you know, that I really find in my own practice, we need to move beyond mainstreaming to transformation. But rather than leave that as a buzzword for all of us, um, the, refer the report does offer some capacities that are needed to successfully navigate this really difficult terrain of transformational change. Because while you said that some people find it kind of hard to even get to the mainstreaming, that that's weird for them. Transformation is going to be harder. And yeah. I think, you know, it's 
at the same time, it's really valuable for all of us to take the afternoon or the, the quarter, whatever it is, to really think about how we can pivot towards this. And I'll mention five capacities that um, are you know, related in the report that have really helped me in my client work. Um, one is to facilitate knowledge co-creation and utilization, like deeply understanding what that means. This is not the city knows all and then goes to the community to hear what they have to say, or this is not the university has all the answers and then might you know, swoop in for the city council meeting to tell people about it. No, this is really doing this work together, mm-hmm. um, which I think we have the pathways for in many cities, but um, we need to do more of. And we need to celebrate where we've done it, right? And then secondly, I think we need to frame a new narrative and champion it and inspire others with it. And you know, your dashboard, for instance, is such a great way to make narrative sing for people. Um, we, we really owe it to ourselves to create a vision, like that, a set of new utopias, you know, cities that are really working well as resilient places. Um, and then you know, we talked already about this point of measurement. Part of transformation is identifying goals and targets and tracking progress along a transformative pathway, um, not a mainstream one, but a transformative one. So it may be really a leap in what our targets are when we think about transformation. And finally, just the last two, you know, transformation means an embrace of deep uncertainty. How are we going to solve equity questions and how are we going to solve the climate crisis? Wow, that's big. Yeah. Um, so, you know, finally recognizing the limits of and being able to constructively dismantle or destabilize existing systems and even our own existing way of thinking could be really valuable for that. I know that's a little bit woo woo, but all of that has been helpful for me and every one of my client interfaces to just shake myself for a minute and say, am I doing this in a transformative fashion? You know, is it really going to make something different happen for all of us, you know, and our kids and um, but th- then the last thing I'll just say about, because um, I know we're, our time is running nigh here, is what was one of the more significant findings? Um, and this is really a finding slash call to action for every one of us. Um, I was struck by how few folks have a moonshot. You know, we spend so much of our lives working, 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 and we really need to pause and ask, what is the biggest thing I could accomplish? That thing mm-hmm. that is seemingly as impossible as taking a walk on the moon. You know. These are the adaptation field leaders, these almost 100 people that we spoke with and looked through all their materials and surveyed. And in some ways, we've already broken from the pack because we're saying climate action and adaptation is is more important than mitigation, right? We're already weird. We're not the mitigation people. We're the adaptation people. But we need to also adapt ourselves because if we don't have this bigger vision, um, we cannot create transformative change and be brave and uncomfortable in embracing these challenges of both social equity and climate uncertainty. Unless we do, though, I don't think we're ever going to get to adaptation equity, which is where you know all of us really need to be in order to create a place where lives are saved and improved um, through adaptation and, and resilience. What a powerful way to end this podcast, Joyce. I mean, I just, <clears throat> it really is it's resonating with me, this whole idea of really pushing ourselves out of our comfort zones. Um, I've been experiencing that recently, actually with a project and with a a local equity partner on a project. And it is um, unsettling Mm. and amazing all at the same time. Um, You know, I'm noticing myself having 17 years of experience in this field, you know, climate and sustainability with local governments, I know I still have a lot to learn, but this particular group is just really pushing me to another place. And um, 
it takes a little bit to like, and maybe it's a little ego, like, hey, I need to check myself at the door here because I'm learning something from these folks and it's helping me, although I, you know, and I'm sure a lot of us are in this place, we're all doing good work and we're trying really hard, but it's easy to get into a pattern. Yeah. And I think, you know, having somebody that can knock you a little bit off to, to maybe just take a slightly different perspective and it could be the smallest adjustment but it really can make a difference. Um, so I really love that you're saying that. I think if we're not pushing ourselves to at least, I mean, I won't say every day that might be too much, but hey, once a month, you should find yourself in a position where you're completely uncomfortable. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not growing. You're not changing. You're not learning, right? Like we need to be in those positions. And I think it's maybe a little easier for those of us that are on the private side as far as consultants um, than it is for some of our public sector folks, colleagues, mm -hmm. uh, because they may be scrutinized more. But man, when you're, when you're knocked off like that, you are opening up an opportunity to learn and, and like you said, transform. Absolutely. And transform for yourself and for the work, which I think any professional, whether you're in a bureaucracy or in consulting or wherever, in the end, that does pay dividends. Um, it does. It absolutely like does. Well, well Kim, thank you so much. Thank so you fun. so much, Joyce. This has been amazing as always. Um, for the listeners uh, who don't know Joyce, if that's even possible, uh, she is, of course, the the czar of climate, shall I say, the, the president, the leader, the founder, Climate Resilience Consulting. Um, you can go to her website at climateresilienceconsulting.com. She has a fantastic blogs. I love your blogs, Joyce. And of course, she has her great climate adaptation action tool, which is a very handy tool that you can download for free um, and just really get some of Joyce's just knowledge um, right at your fingertips. So I encourage everybody to check it out. Joyce, thank you so much. Um, and for sure, everybody check out the Kresge Report, um, Rising to the Challenge Together, if you haven't done that already. Joyce, as always, it is such a pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much, Kim. I'd love to talk to you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our Sustainability Action Series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?